John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the latest installment in the Jurassic franchise? Jurassic Park franchise? The sequel to the Jurassic World, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. And since that's the biggest release this weekend, I decided to also take in some more uh, indie fare. I cover the uh, infamous John Gotti biopic by starring John Travolta, Gotti, as well as the uh, sort of critically lauded indie heist film, American Animals. And I also took a uh, visit to, uh, um, I guess, mid-20th century Japan in the Ghibli Fest presentation of Pompoko. And then we throw in a little Netflix and chat about the Animal Farm adaptations. So without further ado, let's get started. Remember, you're the one who made me come here. I'll be all right. These creatures were here before us. And if we're not careful, they're going to be here after. Welcome to Jurassic World. saying this up front, there will be a spoiler alert warning midway through this review. I won't get it because most of my gripes with the movie do delve into spoiler territory. So be aware of that and I'll give you plenty of warnings. Suffice to say that this is my least favorite entry in the entire Jurassic uh, Park franchise. Uh, Jurassic Park number one still hasn't been beaten and I was pretty lukewarm on Jurassic World, all things considered. It was a nice return to form after uh, Lost World and uh, Part 3, but it still wasn't as good as that first movie. And this is just the pits. And mainly I put that on writer-director, not for this particular one, but the director of the last movie, as well as co-writer and co-writer for this one, Colin Trevorrow. I think the guy just cannot handle actual plot structure like what he defines as a movie plot is complete and utter insanity and pays no attention to what's actually going on in the movie it's like he doesn't it's like he's that kid who turns in his first draft of a paper for a class and thinks he's done that's what i'm getting from his writing and from his direction between the, between the last two Jurassic between the two Jurassic World movies and his last movie Book of Henry, the dude cannot do plot at, at all. Period. So I just did not enjoy this film, and I'll, I will say I think it's almost to its detriment that it tried to openly address complaints people had with the first one. It felt very bitter. In my mind, because it's like, it's like them pointing out, like, okay, it's like that time in uh, Batman versus Superman that they said, it's okay, the city's uninhabited, this part of the city is uninhabited after people complained about the just death and destruction in Man of Steel. It's kind of like that in this movie. And what they did with it is just, it, it, it just didn't work. It didn't work as a, an entry in the Jurassic Park franchise, for one thing. And as a movie itself, Outside of that, it just was really poorly put together. So, 
with that being said, it's definitely one of my least favorite movies this year, and it's my it's it's the it's the one I have no intention of returning to for this for this franchise. So with that being said, let's get into spoiler territory. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. As you can probably tell from the trailers, this is good to, this is um going for a lost world feeling compared to the first movie trying to be more like Jurassic Park. And like straight up references to the Lost World, including Hammond's last line from the Lost World. It's like an epic quote from the great John Hammond. And yeah, it's it gets pretty. And then, of course, most of the plot points during the course of this movie are almost directly lifted from the Lost World. It's it's almost blatant in a sense. And I didn't, and that's the thing. Prior to this movie, The Lost World was considered the worst in the franchise. Some may have considered Part Three the the ender, the killer, but Part, but uh, Lost World was really bad in a lot of people's eyes. And I, it's one that I tend not to care for. But this time around, it really it 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 leans heavy on trying to be like Lost World for who knows what reason they decided. But yeah, it's bad. Um, the dinosaur effects are fine. Uh, I'll think, you know, I think they're a little bit better than the last movie. But that, you know, they're not the they're not that they're still not as good as that first movie. The way they the way that, that um, Spielberg handled uh, the, the effects, they just aren't. And they brought in a, the director of the orphanage. He's a Spanish director um, whose main focus has been horror. And so, for the third act of this movie, they tried to make it a horror movie, and that's where, in the trailer, you see their latest monstrosity, the, the combining of the Indominus Rex with, an, with Blue the Raptor. Or, I guess, another Raptor. So, they took a T-Rex and a Raptor and made the Indominus, and then they added more Raptor to the Indominus to make the Indoraptor. You have no idea what you're doing, do you guys? You, you just, you just like, I don't know. It's all against the wall. What's stuck? What's stuck? Uh, the Indominus Rex from the last movie and Velociraptors. Okay, do the thing. It really felt, it really felt stupid watching it. And the whole, the bit from the trailer, that's still in the movie. It, they, oh god. The way they try to handle the horror in this movie is is laughably awful. Like, they establish the Indoraptor hunts by scent of smell. He can go after any target he has been given. And yet, the leads in this movie, the uh, Chris Pratt, Bryce Howard, and uh, the little girl, get out of his line of sight, he sniffs, and then keeps going. You established the thing, Hunts by Sense of Smell, and he can't tell after losing their, in his line of sight, where they went? Seriously? And then, of course, there's the whole bit that's in the trailer of the Indoraptor breaking in through the little girl's window and, like, reaching out to her like he's freaking E.T. about to... About to boop her on the nose, and it's like, 
That's not how animals hunt. This is an animal. You genetically modified it, but it is an animal. Like, it's, it's killed plenty of people without a problem before. Why is it taking its sweet tongue? Because the plot demands it, and you didn't have any better way of not killing the little girl. Scaring the little girl? I just everything. I still don't like Chris Pratt in this movie. He does not. He fits. He's, he's like. It's, it's almost like he's applying for the position of Indiana Jones. But in order to get that, he has to work his way up through the company by doing these Jurassic movies. And he adds nothing to these movies. He's still a misogynistic prick. Him and Bryce Dallas Howard still don't work as a couple. And I, even though Claire has been written better than the last movie, it's almost to her detriment because it's like, oh, it's actually character growth. But it's not character growth in the sense that it acknowledged. Like, the only people who acknowledge her in the last movie is the bad guy. And he points it out, and she's, and it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of how she was in the last movie. Huh, that's a thing, huh? Yep, that last movie sure exists. And then they just move on, like it's nothing. So, whatever character growth there was, was completely off screen. We didn't get any actual real character growth for Bryce Dallas Howard. She's just an entirely new character in this movie. And speaking of new characters, the two uh, supporting uh, people that he got in this one, um, one's their quote-unquote hacker, and the other is a paleo-veterinarian, despite having never interacted with a dinosaur before, so I don't know how you get that title. I don't know. Uh, but I think the veterinarian was fine, Daniela Pineda. She was fine. Um, apparently she was on Vampire Diaries. I have, this is my first time ever seeing her. She was all right. The hacker kid was um, played by Justice Smith, who is uh, who was in Paper Towns and and the Get Down for Netflix. His main thing is basically apparently he's going to be um, the one of the kids in De- in the Detective Pikachu movie, which I still need to finish. I still need to finish Detective Pikachu. I never did, um, but his main thing is screaming like a girl. And that's not to say anything about him, him him, as an actor, but his character is super whiny and screams all the time and doesn't is not really... It's only beneficial to the plot when it's demanded of him to be beneficial to the plot. Otherwise, he's, he might as well be running around with his hands... With, waving his hands like, eh, eh, I'm so scared, you guys! And I don't like him like... I can understand you wanting to have a, maybe a sissy or somebody who's scared on, of when surrounded by dinosaurs, but his character was not all, it was kind of annoying in that way. Like, it wasn't a well written, like, Lexi, perfect example. The previous hacker in the franchise, Lexi, in the first movie, got freaked out by the dinosaurs. But you had good character moments with her before she got all freaked out. And it turned into a horror movie. And even when she's freaking out, she's able to like, okay, I can do this thing. And it's terrible hacking, you know, for begin, you know, for, but it works as a movie hacker. Here, the guy's character just can't, is, is like a nothing, is, like a, is, is there for the plot's convenience. And that's the thing. We had IT people in the last movie. Like, if we go to the last movie, 
I think one was Jake Johnson. And then we had, um, where's the thing? Here, Jurassic World. Pulling up, I'm, I'm going to pull up that cast list because um, I don't remember them all specifically. I think they were both comedians. I know Jake Johnson was busy filming Tag, so he couldn't come back. Come on, IMDb, quit being a butt. We have Jake Johnson, Judy Greer was the... Co- Lauren Lapkiss. I knew it was another comedian. So you had Jake Johnson and Lauren Lapkiss. What was Lauren Lapkiss doing that you couldn't bring her back? Like, where was she at? You could have brought her back. I'm pretty sure she was the hacker. Either her or Jake Johnson was the hacker in the last movie. You could have easily brought them back and have them continue to work with Claire. Instead, you just made up entirely new characters. Like, what's the point even? You know, and the only reason the veterinarian is there is to keep Blue alive, and then she's pointless throughout the rest of the movie. So, I mean, characters are really there for plot convenience. And then, the vi- like, the villain here is um, Rafe Spall, who I never, I don't think I've seen before. I thought of him as, like, the poor man's Alan Tudyk. Uh, apparently, he was the writer that uh, the adult Pi talked to in The Life of Pi. And DC Andy Cartwright in Hot Fuzz? I don't remember that. And then he was uh, Danny Moses in The Big Short. He's going to be, he's apparently filming a War of the Worlds miniseries. So that's going to be coming out soon. But yeah, he's like, he's like if Alan Tudyk got, and, um, and Ed Helms kind of did a fusion dance and became the same person and became like one person. But he, ultimately he's, he, he, he starts out as, um, oh, what's his name from, uh, The Lost World? Um, uh, Hammond's nephew? He kind of starts out, starts out in that sense. Arliss Howard, I believe, is the actor. Um, who's Private Cowboy in Full Metal Jacket. And he, um, you know, he's, and so, um, Rafe starts out kind of like that character in uh lost world but uh eventually just turns into a mustache twirling villain i'm selling dinosaurs on the black market aren't i just sinister (laughs) and yeah he it's it's ridiculous and unfortunately they waste some actually good people in here jeff goldblum's Filmed all his scenes in one day, and they just cut it for bookends of the movie. James Cromwell was really wasted as suppo- as what was supposed, I'm guessing, was supposed to be John Hammond if if um, Richard Attenborough hadn't died. And then Toby Jones is in here as a wasted role with some auctioneer with a comb over. And then B.D. Wong returns for like to remind you, hey, B.D. Wong's still here. He's kind of a villain now for some reason. We don't know why, but dinosaurs are gonna be weaponized. For some reason. I That's the thing. This whole thing centers on... This whole new trilogy has been centered on Colin Trevorrow thinking we have to weaponize the dinosaurs. Which is like some 80s supervillain level stupid logic. It doesn't make any sense since dinosaurs may be better than people. But you can still kill them. Like, you can do all the genetics you want to make them bulletproof. But plenty of explosives and disease and anything else you can do. If it could be, you'd be better off making killer robots. You know? Why are you spending your time trying to weaponize dinosaurs other than to be an 80s supervillain? What is the point? Um, 
And then, of course, this ties into a twist in the movie that they that they that initially you think, oh, um, this little girl is going to end up being like the daughter of maybe Lexi from the first movie, or maybe Tim's wife or something, and it's going to be tied back into Hammond somehow, or tied back into the first movie somehow. Her mom is somebody we've never heard of, who is the daughter of James Cromwell, but it turns out that the granddaughter is actually just a clone of the mom. And as soon as they reveal that, you're just like, who cares? Why does that matter? That doesn't play into anything. Her being a clone plays less into the story than Boba Fett was a clone. Boba Fett being being a clone of Django made more impact on the story than this girl being a clone of nameless woman we've never heard of until now. This whole movie is a dumpster fire and no matter what they do with the dinosaurs in this movie it cannot make this movie worth watching more than once if you if you're dying to see how they followed up on jurassic world just to just to see the train wreck happen before your eyes maybe it has some value to you for that otherwise just go back and watch the first movie just go back and rewatch that movie. It still holds up. Screw this movie and screw Colin Trevorrow and his and his numb nuts of a writing partner, Derek Connolly. J. A. Bo- uh, J. A. Bayona. He's he's probably still fine. I haven't seen the orphanage. He did a Monster Calls, and that was amazing. So the guy's a perfectly fine director. He just got a really crappy script this time, and. He deserves better. As does this franchise. This franchise needs to just stop going into the Michael Bay Transformers route and try to you know ease itself back into the, what made it work. And unfortunately, I don't see them doing that. Never back off ever. walk together and we fall together this is the life oh boy this movie it sure is a hot mess yep um Gotti spent almost a decade in development hell it's been in development since 2010 and it finally was brought to the screen this year and has the prestigious rating of 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, Rotten Tomatoes is a meaningless website. It's trying to add number numerical value to movie critique. And that's you can't really do that. I mean, you can only do so much with a movie review to give it a numerical value in order to add percentages to a rating for a movie. It, it ultimately is pointless. But, yeah, um... This was originally slated to be on demand, but the producers demanded it be seen by the theatrical movie-going public. They wanted this to be released in theaters, and as part of that, it was distributed by Movie Pass, which another movie is going to be. I'm going to bring up another movie that was distributed by Movie Pass in this episode, and there and it garnered even more notoriety. By investigative reporters digging into who is rating... Because that's the thing. This had like 
disparaging review differences between the critics and the audience. And that's the thing. Audience members are going to be... Audience reviews are going to be slightly higher than the critics. That's just the basis of how you review movies. Critics review them sort of based on their own criteria. They have, they apply filmmaking technique and things of that nature to a, to, to a review, to how they review a certain movie. And audience members mainly go by were they entertained or not. And that's kind of how you see a difference of audience members are willing to give, uh, you know, are willing to support more mainstream blockbustery movies because they were entertained, whereas critics are going to aim, you know, have higher reviews and scores for art, artsy, artsier movies that do more with the genre. And that's, you know, that's just an inherent... That's always been this case. Critics, critics enjoy things that, things that deal with the actual nature of filmmaking and the meta, the, the meta behind it. Whereas audiences have always treated film as an entertainment option. So, or did they like it? Or did they have fun? That's what they look for in a movie. That's fine. But there was, there was a wide disparity between Gotti's critical score of 0% and its audience score. Which, if it's a bad movie, it probably would have been 20s, 30s. That would have been fine. But apparently this was like rated super positive. Let me pull up. Uh, let's see where it's at now. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Let's pull up, uh, where's Gotti? It's not even in the top box office or new releases. I have to go digging for it. Um, where is Gotti? I'm not seeing it. There it is. Um... Not, it can't have been the 59. Where was the, uh, where's the thing? Um, let me go to the Gotti Wikipedia page that I, that I saw it on, uh, the controversy, Rotten Tomatoes audience score controversy. Do they say, um, Approval score of 80% from the audience. Uh, upon its initial release. It's currently down to 59%, which is, it's close, it's closer. It's definitely, it definitely feels like, you know, it definitely feels more appropriate for this movie. But 80% approval rating from the audience. That screamed fishy, and specifically uh, Dan Morell of Screen Junkies looked into it, and he discovered that a lot of the marketing push behind it and a lot of the uh, reviews that were going into Rotten Tomatoes were only reviewed two movies, and they were both distributed by MoviePass. So MoviePass seemingly employed a bunch of people to create fake accounts in order to prop up their movies, which... Yeah, um, that that that's definitely uh, yeah. If this comes to pass and this gets invest, investigated by like the uh, the SEC or something, or some you know some some uh, watchdog organization and, and movie pass is called out on it, we might be we not we might be this could this is this is uh, this could end the. Um, this could end any sort of rise for MoviePass if it turns out that they were trying to force critical, you know, and try to force an improved 
uh, critical read. I mean, but studios did this in the 90s where they actually, impl- I think Sony was the one that employed an actual fake film critic in order to prop up their score so there's always somebody giving positive reviews of Sony pictures, even if they sucked. So if that MoviePass is doing the same thing with Rotten Tomatoes, that could easily bite them in the ass if it turned if that's what, how it turned out to be. If somebody investigated that and it it's revealed in the re, you might see that article over the summer. Who knows? But yeah, there was a, there's definitely a disparity. And then of course, uh, uh, MoviePass and uh, what is it? Vertigo Entertainment uh, is that who the um, other distributor was? Uh, the people behind uh, Gotti were like, hey, Vertical Entertainment. So we're, They were like, hey, the critics hate us, but the audience loves us. See, you know, so it's like they tried to, they did this specifically as a ploy for their, for their social media viral marketing. That's, that's low. So this, but I haven't gotten to the film itself because I, I don't have anything to say. It's. It's an it's an incredibly inept. This is from Kevin Connolly, who's probably best known for being on and directing episodes of the show Entourage. I honestly haven't seen anything this guy has done, and he's just absolutely in, incapable of making a good movie. You know, I mean that's the thing. It shouldn't be hard to make a Goodfellas, Godfather style mob movie about John Guy. That information is already there for you. They've done this before. This shouldn't be that hard. And yet, this movie can't keep its attention in any it's cutting all over the place from John Gotti in the present to how he became the head of the Gambino family to this thing to this thing to this thing and they tried to tie it all together and somebody said you got to watch it from John Gotti Jr's point of view cuz he's the he's the real focal character and it's like you don't get that because John Travolta is the only real star in this movie. If they wanted it to be about the kids, they should have hired somebody to somebody worth watching in order to play the kid. But they don't. They hire some nobody, and he's and he plays it like freaking Hayden Christensen. He's that bad, and it's it's just it's it's tying too much into stereotypical mob. Uh, culture that we've seen thanks to the Scorsese movies and the like and it doesn't do anything else with it so the main thing that I was was bored this movie was a hundred minutes or so and I was bored out of my mind sitting through it I could not I, I would like there are some bad movies like um, Hurricane Heist or Snakes on a Plane, or or even Jurassic World to an extent, the, the Fallen Kingdom one. They are so bad that they warrant viewing just for you to see that, look at how gloriously awful this is. Gotti is terrible in the same way that a lot of Pure Flix Entertainment movies are terrible. They are terrible in the fact that they are more, most, more than anything else boring. They are tedious to sit through. They don't have anything that bad. They're not awful enough to be enjoyably bad. They are just a slog to sit through. And if you got some enjoyment out of this, it could only be because of your familiarity with the Gotti story. Because if you know any... Because if you don't know anything like I did, 
then you can't possibly care. Like the only thing I cared about was the fact that New Yorkers are so beholden to a, 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 no, um, a known criminal that it's like, hey, he, did, he, was, he was good people. Which for me just made all his supporters sound like, you know, blithering idiots. Just a bunch of mouth breathers who are so, who are so like, like in love with the idea of the mob culture that they don't care that this guy was a murderer and a criminal and it's like, yeah, the police are the real bad guys. And yeah, I mean, it, it really, it, it, it really, it's, it's kind of fascinating to watch how this sort of cult of personality is built around a douchebag like John Gotti. So if you want to watch something about John Gotti, watch a, watch a documentary, watch maybe another movie about him. This, don't waste your time on this nonsense. Can you please not touch the model? Thanks. Let's do this. Now, if only Bart Layton, the guy behind this movie, had some had somebody as interesting as John Gotti to talk about. Instead, he's got four podunk kids from Kentucky who tried to steal priceless artifacts. Um, that's the premise behind this movie, American Animals, and it's another. It's the other Movie Pass movie that came out this weekend, and it this one didn't need the push from fake accounts on Rotten Tomatoes in order to work. It, ju- it, it was perfectly fine on its own. It doesn't matter who released it. It's a good movie. Uh, the premise here is based on... Uh, I don't know how you would describe it. It's a, it's a, it, was a, it was an attempted grand theft of uh, priceless bo- uh, books from the Transylvania University's library, uh, the spe- their special collections. And I don't, I don't know if, the, if, it, if the act itself has a... Has a, has a has a has a name for it, but the whole idea is that uh, this kid named um, uh, Spencer Reinhardt is attending Transylvania University, which is a small, I think, private university. Uh, yeah, private university in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. This all takes place in Lexington, and he see he's an artist who sees. Um, who was fascinated by this vintage first edition of the of, of uh, John James Audubon's Birds of America, and he comes up and he's like fascinated with the idea. There's this twelve million dollar book just sitting in a library in in Kentucky, and he poses this to his buddy Warren, played by Evan Peters, uh, the Quicksilver from the previous two X Men movies, uh, Apocalypse and Days of Future Past. And Warren is get Warren's this stoner kid who is is uh, slogging by on his uh, sports scholarship that he's kind of forced into by his dad, and he he's very he he's kind of like a sort of anarchist in a sense. He's very much against the system and being told what to do and capital how capitalism has changed them. You know, he's one of those kind of douchebag anarchist kids from college. And he comes up with the idea to steal those books in order to get the money. And he mainly does it 
because it would be fun. That's the impetus behind this whole ordeal is that uh, Warren wanted to have some meaning in his life, to have the, a thrill and he couldn't get that, and he could get that, and the only way he, in his mind to get that at this point was to steal these books. And Spencer's kind of roped into this because, you know, he's, he, Spencer's just fascinated by these books and by, and by especially the Birds of America. Um, and so over the course of that, they bring in two, fr- uh, they bring in a, a, a friend of theirs, uh, Eric, um, who's kind of, who's, uh, studying at the University of Lexington in Kentucky and or the University of Kentucky in Lexington I think maybe uh he and Warren are going to, are going to the same school as is I believe their other buddy Chaz uh played by somebody from Glee uh, I didn't recognize him but mostly unna- unknowns playing these four kids uh like Bar- Barry Kogan 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 uh Okay, here we go. See, sometimes Wikipedia will have pronunciation guides, and sometimes they won't. Kyogen, uh, who is best known for uh, killing of the the killing of a sacred deer, um, the movie with Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell, and that's probably. And then, of course, he appeared in Dunkirk, but I couldn't point him out because everybody looked the same in that movie, pretty much. But yeah, he's here as Spencer, and then. Uh, Jared Abramson is the guy who plays Eric, and Abramson is probably best known for the Netflix series Travelers. Uh, he's just a he's a Canadian actor mainly, and like apparently he was somebody named Tim Warren in the Dog in Do- Diary of Wimpy Kid Dog Days. So this this kid this is kind of the big. He was also had a a, a two episode role on Fear the Walking Dead. So this guy is very on his way up. And of course, uh, Blake Jenner is the kid from Glee. He play he played um, writer Lynn, and he was also the love interest in The Edge of Seventeen. So this and he's also had a recurring role as Adam Foster on Supergirl. So I mean, this guy is mainly romantic comedies and um, oh no, not the not the love interest. Uh, he was very different. He played uh, Haley Steinfeld's brother in The Edge of Seventeen. So, okay, I remember him. I remember that kid. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of where this guy came from. And he's playing the jockey guy with a lot of money. Uh, that's who Chaz is in the group. So, Warren's kind of the mastermind. Spencer is kind of the out, the engineer outlying these things. Uh, Eric is the, is the um, tactics tactician who's planning out every all the details. And then Chaz is the getaway driver and the money guy. And so... They all the, by recruiting these two guys, Warren and Spencer, are finally they finally are getting ready to pull off this heist. And in fact, Warren even seemingly gets it gets. Um, I say seemingly because it's, uh, it's you're never quite sure what's truth and what's and what's all and what's pre- being presented by Warren as truth. And even and that's a fun thing that that happens in the movie too. But basically, they do try to pull off the books, and the heist goes wrong, and they en- do end up serving seven years in federal prison. And then, and that's the thing is, Layton is best known as a documentarian. His biggest thing was the Locked Up Abroad series for A and E, and here he mixes narrative 
film narrative filmmaking with documentary filmmaking because he'll interview the actual kids involved who are now in their 30s he'll he's he has interviews with their family with the librarian who was there that day and he then recreates what happened with the actors but he'll also play with the idea that they're being retold this by the by the people so like there's a bit where they're meeting somebody in new york and and Warren and Spencer kind of differ on who they remember meeting. But, and so when they differ on that, the actual actor that uh, Evan Peters is meeting with changes. And there's even a point later on where they're talking about how Spencer and Warren talked about this idea. And they couldn't remember if it was at a party or while driving. And so it flips around with where they're talking about this. And eventually, Spence, in fact, Warren... Adult Warren talks with young Warren about, is this how Spencer remembers it? It's a cool bit. And this, and that's the nice thing is that um, Leighton has a great way of playing around with memory and with how, and with how things go down. And then he's able to do a really tense heist movie by the end. Cause the first time they do it, things, something goes wrong. And then when they try to do it again, uh, things go even worse and by the end, then when they have everything, it, 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 there's this really tense build up to the climax where the FBI finds them, and it's it's a it's just it has like the tense like really like the strings being plucked staccato or pizzicato, I believe. Um, and so it's like it's like this undermining drone underlying drone I right I should say underlying drone of the movie that goes it's like building up to the them losing their minds with 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 uh paranoia and fear and yeah it's if you haven't already go check this out if you can if it's near you go see it it's a solid movie and one of my contenders for uh favorite of the year from the legendary Studio Ghibli and Academy Award-nominated director Iso Takahata, Palm Poco comes to select cinemas nationwide. When the fun-loving Tanuki find their woodland community under attack by developers, they band together and learn the ancient art of transformation to try to scare off the humans and save their home. Playing for three days only, Sunday, June 17th, Monday, June 18th, and Wednesday, June 20th, as part of Studio Ghibli Fest 2018. Tickets and full schedule available at GibliFest.com. I have been meaning to support this event all all year. It started, I think, in March, and I've only now gotten to go to one of these presentations. This is a Fathom Events thing that's been going on until the end of the year called Ghibli Fest, and they started off with. I, let me pull up Ghibli, Ghibli Fest. This is done in conjunction with the new owners of. Uh, Of uh, of the Studio Ghibli distribution rights in America, uh, G Kids, and they start. They've been doing this for I think all year. Uh, let's see, one, two, three. It's only nine months of the year, so it started in March, and it started with Ponyo. Then they did. Um, no, let's see. Uh, where's the list? Where's the list of uh? Stuff they did. Was it a... Let me see it in order. 
Because I know this, they just did Pompoko. Apparently the next one is going to be Princess Mononoke. So, okay. So here's the order. Started with Ponyo in March. The Cat Returns in April. Porco Rosso in May. They just did Pompoko. Uh, next month is Princess Mononoke. Then Grave of the Fireflies. Then My Neighbor Totoro. Then Spirited Away. And they end it with Castle in the Sky. And I missed Ponyo. I wasn't as concerned about that. Uh, the Cat Returns I missed, which I haven't seen. And Porco Rosso I haven't seen either. So I missed those opportunities. I haven't seen Pompoco, but I was really fascinated to see this. For those who don't know, uh, this is the late, uh, just recently passed away, I think at the beginning of the year, uh, Isao Takahata's, um, one of his sort of environmentalist stories. Isao Takahata also um, behind, uh, let me see, I think... Uh, what was his stuff? He's, he's, I think he did, he did Grave of the Fireflies, which is more... That's the thing. Isao Takahata covers mainly two things. Environmentalism and the, changing, the shifting culture in Japan. So Grave of the Fireflies was centered on, the, on, World War, on, on Japan in World War II. But then he also did Only Yesterday, which is more about the shifting culture in Japan... Um, he adapted the My Neighbors, the Yamadas, which was a day with, with a, which was like a daily comic strip, and then his last one was the Tale of Princess Kaguya, which was uh, sort of uh, it's a it's an adaptation of uh, an old Japanese fable, I believe. So this guy, so this guy has done all. He is also a producer on the Red Turtle. Uh, a couple years ago, which was a contender for uh, uh, Best Animated Feature. Uh, Takahata also did, apparently, the music for Kiki's Delivery Service, so that's something. Produced uh, Castle in the Sky and Nausicaa, and there's a bunch of stuff before uh, Ghibli. So, yeah, he's mainly known for Grave of the Fireflies, Only Yesterday, Pompoko, the Yamadas, um... And the tale of Princess and the tale of Princess Kaguya, so he's, but he kind of you know he's obviously had an interest in in sort of discussing like a lot of Ghibli films do how cult, how the culture sh- has shifted over the years, especially since these guys started off you know during the World War II era of Japan and saw how just how much things changed as Japan modernized over the 20th century, and this is no different. This is a this is about a group uh, about the Tanuki in what's the area? Uh, the Tama Hills outside of Tokyo, and it it starts in the '60s and leads all the way up even into the '90s as Tom, as the Tama Hills start developing into the suburbs, and these Tanuki. Are being are losing more and more of their habitat, and so they do. And it's about them either trying to adapt to this change or to conserve their way of life. And it's about um, you know, it's uh, it deals with environmentalism and how humans are so oblivious to how they're damaging the environment. They they it also deals with Japanese culture and how the how they almost and how it's almost forgotten its past in a way, uh, which is another which is a big deal in a lot of Ghibli movies. The idea that you forget who you are if you progress too far beyond that, and to not 
overlook your who you know your past too much, um, and whether or not, and of course, whether or not you should, you should you should change with the times. What are the benefits to adapting? But I missed the dub version, which seems to be pretty good. That one has Clancy Brown as as one of the characters. J.K. Simmons is another guy. Tress McNeil. Jonathan Taylor Thomas is the lead cat is is the is one of the lead characters. Kevin Michael Richardson is in this. John DiMaggio, Olivia Dabo, Brian Posehn is a minor character. Russie Taylor, Maurice Lamarche. So solid voice acting cast on top of um, on top of the celebrities that they brought in, who are really good voice actors in their own right for the most part. Um, although I don't know how Jonathan Taylor Thomas. This is his. This is. This came out in 94, so this is probably, like, right after Lion King, Jonathan Taylor Thomas. So we'll, I have no idea how, uh, how that went. I'm assuming it's that. Either they, really, either they brought him in way after the fact. When was the dub made? Does not say when the dub was made. So I'm assuming it must have been, uh, must have been late 90s or something. So that, that, because that would make sense why you bring in... Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Otherwise, that, that's a weird pull. Um, so yeah, it, it's I, I I think the main thing is it, it it doesn't know it doesn't have the right balance of seriousness and com- comedy. This will veer off into random comedy bits right after like really serious discussions about how these Tanuki are going to survive and. You know, what to do, you know, whether or not they should adapt or not. And then all of a sudden, hey, let's have a party! Yeah! So, it's a weird mix. It's never quite sure how to handle, mix the serious bits with the comedy. And that's interesting, considering that Grave of the Fireflies is way more, has a way better idea of what tone it's going for. Whereas this is sort of a mixed bag of tone, of what tone it wants. So... It's not bad. It's 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 a solid Ghibli film, but I probably wouldn't revisit it unless I wanted to, unless I you know was was up for something weird because this loves to get weird, and it's not one of my favorites, but it's a good movie. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the popcorn junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Oh, right. Last things I saw this week, I missed Comrade Detective and those A24 series I wanted to watch. And I also missed HBO uh, dropping the Fahrenheit 451 remake. I'll have to uh, watch that this week. But the last thing I did watch was actually tying into an episode of the upcoming Living in the Stacks podcast. Uh which you can also check out and has since premiered on our on our fine network Gumby Cat and it's me and uh, mostly my friends plus Diana from who does the Ma- uh, Macintosh and Mod series of podcasts and we all get together as sort of a book club and so we've discussed Julie of the Wolves um Lamb the Gospel According to Biff Christ Childhood Pal um Tales, uh, we started with uh, one of the Earthsea books, A Wizard of Earthsea, and we're going to be discussing in the coming weeks Animal Farm by um, George Orwell. 
And so, as part of that, I decided to revisit the two adaptations. I'd seen them before, but I wanted to check them out again after reading, rereading the book. Short book, fantastic read. You should, uh, we get political in the discussion, so uh, when that hits, just I'm going to have to have like a content warning to be like, just so you know, <laughs> can't avoid it. But um, I rewatched the, anima- the uh, animated adaptation and the one that Hallmark did in 1999. And they're two widely different adaptations. One, the one from 1954 was an animated adaptation about 70 minutes long. And it's, a, it's not a direct adaptation. It takes the elements of it and tells a more streamlined version of it. It leaves out a bunch of characters, uh, Clover, Molly, Moses the Raven, and the, the, the Pilkington, and I believe Frederick, who are the neighboring farm owners. And it cuts out a lot of the nuance as well. A lot of the real commentary on the, on, on the Russian Revolution that it was making was left out of that animated version. At the same time, by streamlining it, it made a really solid animated version of the story, even though a lot of the stuff was missing from it. And if you and by and by the time we reached nineteen ninety nine, Hallmark adapted it, did a much more direct adaptation, included Molly the Horse, included references to Clover, included a bunch of stuff that was left out of the of the animated version. Um Replace, but yet it replaced uh, Wimper, who was the main, who was sort of the idea, reference to Russia trading with the West, uh, and replaced him with Pilkington, who was one of the neighbors, and then went into a weird tangent about propaganda by, have, by introducing ca- television and cameras and, and, and having a whole propaganda piece about Napoleon in the movie. It's we, and then by the time, then it just cuts to the end where apparently the animals abandoned the farm to live in hiding, and the Napoleon's regime just collapsed. And it's a bizarre ending to the movie. And the one thing both adaptations get wrong is they try to force a happy ending. In the animated version, the uh, the uh, the ending is a counter revolution. Uh, to Napoleon's regime, or I guess, a, no, a revolution. Because it wouldn't be a counter-revolution. That would imply that the, the Napoleon's leading a revolution. So there's a revolution led by Benjamin, the donkey, uh, against Napoleon's regime. After he has fully turned into the into no better than the humans. And to just basically, the pigs are just more humans. And it ends on this, like, strong, defiant tone of always oppressing tyranny. And it's a nice sentiment, but it misses the point. And then the Hallmark movie opens with a reference to what the ending is going to be, which is the collapse of Napoleon's regime, which looks so bizarre and out of place and such a weird aesthetic that they went with. And I can't recommend people watch the Hallmark one. It's not very good. Yet it's the most faithful to the book and has the better cast. In the Hallmark movie, you have Patrick Stewart as Napoleon. Great choice. Uh, the late Peter Ustinov as Old Major. Solid choice. Uh, Kelsey Grammer as Snowball. Good choice. 
You had Pete Postlethwaite as Farmer Jones and Benjamin the Donkey. Great choice. You had Ian Holm, who is best known as uh, Bilbo from Lord of the Rings. Uh, not the young Bilbo, but old Bilbo. He plays Squealer, the sort of mouthpiece to Napoleon. He's good. And then you have Julia Ormond as a made-up audience surrogate narrative narrator character narrator character um as a sheepdog who gives birth to who eventually gives birth to the uh secret police that napoleon enforces who's it's all really really weird the way they handle some things and it's also the uglier version because they try to incorporate uh animatronic animals on uh, as well as realistic animals and then they include like a really badly done cgi rat that's sort of like some some comic relief character who's terrible and i cannot recommend people watch it it's more direct an adaptation it's trying to be more faithful but it loses any sense of passion behind it it's really dry and boring ultimately so of all the so it's weird to say but the animated version that cuts out most of it and is not a good adaptation is the better movie to watch. Let's suggest these to uh, the Dom. I love the Dom. Go check out the Dom on YouTube. He does adaptation reviews, and I would love to hear his thoughts on this. Um, but yeah, I'm also apparently they're also. I learned through the recording of that episode that apparently Andy Serkis wants to do a mocap and high frame rate 3D version of Animal Farm. Which, I need to see, um, Breathless, I think his other one was? About the guy who, uh, who, who was paralyzed from the neck down and found a way to improve, uh, what was that movie? Hold on. Andy Serkis. Filmography. Director. Um, Breathe is the movie. Uh, and that one was uh, Andrew Garfield and Claire Foy. Um, polio, paralyzed from the neck down, assistance of a respirator, and it's about him making do with that and trying to improve the standing of. That apparently had Tom Hollander in it, uh, Hugh Bonneville. So solid casting there. It looked good. I never got a chance to see it. And he's also doing that Mowgli movie uh, coming up, which is a darker, grittier interpretation of the jungle book and that one had uh that one has christian bale as bagheera andy circus is going to be baloo benedict cumberbatch is shere khan and uh kate blanchett is going to be ka and then you've got tom honder again as somebody named tabiki tabik tabiki tabaki hold on let me see in uh, as a list of the characters in the jungle in the mowgli parts of the jungle book uh but it's not here there it is uh tabak tabakui i think who's a apparently a minor character who's a jackal uh who is like the sidekick to shere khan so that should be interesting it's gonna be that character i haven't seen in any of the even in the disney interpretation he wasn't there so that should be so that's coming out in october this year and if that does well, hopefully he can actually make his Animal Farm movie because I'm down with that. And with that, with that, that takes care of the review portion. So after this quick break, we'll be back to discuss 
Fantastic Dinosaurs of the Movies! For anybody who gets that reference. Did you know Ash's name in Japan is Satoshi after Pokemon creator Satoshi Tajiri? Did you know Roroni is a neologism created by the original author of the Roroni Kenshin manga? Did you know Godzilla's Japanese name is a portmanteau of gorilla and whale? If you want to learn about these subjects and more, listen to Majide, a Westerner's view of Japanese media and culture, available only on the Gumby Cat Network. to an old VHS tape that I used to watch as a kid called Fantastic Dinosaurs of the Movies. And so it, the, the tape, which is basically a collection of trailers for dinosaur movies. And I, and so that, that whole thing began with Fantastic Dinosaurs of the Movies. So that, I just explained the reference. Um, anyway, we're talking about dinosaurs. We're talking about the, the big green, we're sometimes feathery, uh, scaly monsters that we all know and love from our childhoods and how and their history on the big screen. Now, this isn't going to cover every dinosaur movie ever made. This is just going to cover the big sweeping uh, depictions of dinosaurs. So our story actually begins millions of years ago because that's when the dinosaurs died out and then we cut to 65 million years later. In the year 1841. You see, by that point, bones have already started to be uncovered, but people thought they were bones to prove that there were giants living among us as sort of like proof as proof behind the veracity of the Bible. And some thought they were proof of the existence of dragons. And so it, it, took, uh, it took until naturalist Sir Richard Owen in 1841 to actually coin the term dinosaur. This was his way of saying we have a new ter- uh, we have a new terminology for these beasts that we have started to uncover. They will they will henceforth be known as dinosaurs, which comes from the Greek for terrible lizards. And and even back then, it only took him a decade to get him to start exhibiting dinosaurs wherever he went. He was big on showcasing these beasts that he had coined. And as part of that, he added 33 uh, statues of how, what they believed dinosaurs to look like to the Crystal Palace in London. Now, if you're actually a Londoner, and you, you can go to the site of the formal, former Crystal Palace in London and see those statues still in place. Because, unfortunately... That Crystal Palace burnt to the ground, and uh, they so and so those statues are still there in the Crystal Palace Park, and it's actually it's actually known as Dinosaur Court, and and uh, and if you they've been they've since been 
revitalized uh, and and you know made to look you know made, and made and restored by um, the you know by the British uh, government or whoever owns the Crystal Palace Park information you know all that information and yeah there's even if there's even uh, lithographs of uh, Sir Richard Owen holding a dinner in the mold of one of the iguanodons that that are seen there and. The thing is, these dinosaurs are not what you would imagine dinosaurs to look like. Like, the closest one to, uh, like, the only ones that are close, to, really close to how they look are, like, the mammals um, and then the ichthyosaurus. Like, the megalosaurus and the iguanodon, they all, they, none of them look like how we've determined them to look. And so, but it's a nice way of showcasing here, you know, here's what we thought dinosaurs looked like. And so even back in the 1850s, after they had just been uh, named, Sir Richard Owen was trying to make it, trying to make some money off of these big lumbering beasts. And so when Hollywood, so when films started to make an appearance, it didn't take long for dinosaurs to make their way onto the film. I mean, it took some time. It took about, till about the 1920s with... Special effects pioneer uh, Willis O'Brien bringing the first dinosaurs to life in a live-action movie. Now, they've been on film before then, but I'll get to that later. Uh, Willis O'Brien's dinosaurs, you may remember, as from The Lost World from 1925 and from King Kong. And it was at, and so for the, for the first half of the 20th century, all dinosaurs on film were brought to life mainly through stop-motion animation. It was the most uh, efficient way of bringing dinosaurs realistically to life on film. Because as after O'Brien passed away, his protege, another special effects pioneer, Ray Harryhausen, brought even more dinosaurs to life. He's behind the caveman movies of the era, like One Million B- Years B.C., and When Dinosaurs Roamed the Earth, I think. Uh, if you look at his... Uh, his his filmography, you will see. Not only did he, I think, assist Willis O'Brien. Okay, he started assisting on Mighty Joe Young, which was a sort of a sort of King Kong esque wannabe. Uh, uh, but he his first real film, uh, just as a special effects artist, was a couple years later with The Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, which fe- which was based on a uh, Ray Bradbury short story. Uh, then you've got Mysterious Island, which featured dinosaurs. You've got Wamelius BC, the Valley of Guanji. And, okay, so it wasn't, so he had no dealing with, uh, so it was one million years BC that he did. But when dinosaurs roamed the earth, wasn't, was another, ruled the earth was the name of the movie. That was another, um, this was, th- this was part of that whole, uh, yeah, cave girl, uh, series of schlock movies from the 60s and who did the effects on that one let me take a look at the imdb uh there we go Uh, cinematography produced costume makeup production art albert blackshaw special effects by alan bryce roger dickon brian johnson 
So Alan Bryce, let's see what he's done. He apparently worked on Star Wars, Alien, Legend, The Killing Fields. Not seeing Oliver, apparently. So, so maybe he wasn't the main one behind it, but yeah, there was a whole series of a lot of some some produced by Britain, some produced by America. Like when dinosaurs ruled the earth was Hammer's uh, interp- Hammer's way of cashing in on the success of One Million Years BC, which was done with, through Warner, uh, not not through uh, Warner Pathé uh, in, in the UK, but through 20th Century Fox in America, which was also I was okay. So no, that was also a Hammer film productions. So, but okay. So, Hammer did a bunch of like cave girl movies at the time, and they utilized uh, stop motion to showcase the um, dinosaurs. And it, and if you didn't want to put money into stop motion, you could always do slurposaurs. Yeah, I learned this terminology today. Slurposaurs are uh. Her nickname given to the special effect of utilizing actual modern-day reptiles as dinosaurs by gluing accoutrements on their scales, like fins and horns and stuff. Uh, you see this. Uh, you see this in the 1929 version of the Mysterious Island. You see this. Uh, you see one in One Million Years BC. Journey to the Sunny Earth, The Lost World Remake from 1960, King Dinosaur utilized them. It was, no, it was notoriously bad. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's it, it probably the worst in util- utilization of dinosaurs as a special effect. Uh, but if you didn't want to do that, you could always put a man in the suit, <laughs> which is what a lot of the kaiju movies did. When they wanted to try and bring a dinosaur to life, they would put a man in a suit. In fact, there was a really bad movie from, I think, the 80s. Uh, when, when, when did the last dinosaur come out? I think it was 1977. Uh, 1977 Japanese-American production, Tokusatsu, uh, featuring a man in a suit as a Tyrannosaurus. Oh, it was so bad. I remember seeing this on like a Saturday afternoon after the cartoons had ended. It was bad. I need to revisit it. Did they do um? Did they do a mystery science theater on it? If not, that was this is perfect for mystery science theater. And like they like, there's the title song by Mari Laws called "He's the Last Dinosaur." This was also a co-production, not only with um. Uh, Japanese production Suba, Suba, Suburaya, which, uh, what did Suburaya do? I know Toho's uh, tokusatsu movies. Apparently Suburaya did Ultraman. So the guys who made Ultraman and Rankin Bass. That's right. The people behind the stop motion Christmas specials and the animated Hobbit and Lost Unicorn movies did the last dinosaur with the people behind Ultraman. I need to revisit this. I'm going to do a... I'm planning on doing more stuff for the Patreon pretty soon. I'm going to have to cover this movie. Yes. Yes. This must be so. Uh, Anyway, uh, yeah. So if you're really cheap and you don't want to put money into stop motion or the time, you could put a man in a suit. 
That's like a dinosaur, right? Uh, so, after, you know, with cheap ways like Slurposaurs and men in, men in suits, uh, stop motion seemed to be the best way to go. Although, we also saw a new way of interpreting dinosaurs with animatronics. And Stan Winston is most famous for this, for the way he utilized animatronics in the Jurassic Park franchise under Spielberg's production. But you also see this in a, in a lost classic, an underrated gem, if I dare, so dare, dare say so myself, for, uh, from, I believe, 1983. It's called Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. And it was based on the cryptid... cryptid uh, which is a terminology for things like Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, um, the Yeti, yeah, things of that nature. Um, and it, there's one in, there's a cryptid in the Congo called Mokele Mbembe, which is basically a giant, uh, which is basically believed to be a giant apatosaurus, or a sauropod of sorts. And this movie features Sean Young and William Cat researching in the Congo. When they come across uh, the 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 um, the Mukele Mbembe, uh, which is basically two adult uh, brontosaurs and a baby, the titular baby, Secret of the Lost Legend, and also features Olu Jacobs as the um, as, who's a Nigerian actor, and actually received the African Movie Academy Award for. Um, a 2007 performance. What was he in that year? Uh, doesn't say what he was, that he was in a movie that year. What was he... What did he receive the award for then? Best actor in a leading role. So it must have been 2006. But it doesn't say he was in a movie that year. So then what was the... Let me go to the awards thing. Categories, best actor in a leading role. It must have been for uh, TV then, or something. Here we go. Uh, Olu Jacobs won for a movie called Dancing Heart. Never heard of it. Sadly, I have to look into uh, that. May be something to look into. I'm I'm very, very much behind on my um, foreign films. And there's entire markets of films that I'm that I'm sadly not uh, showcasing on the show that I probably should at some point. But yeah, um, that, so that featured mainly animatronics and puppets and puppets with uh, someone in a suit playing the little baby, and that was kind of sort of rising the prominence as we lead into Jurassic Park, which was um, which was the first to utilize computer generated images. To bring dinosaurs to life. And it's still honestly one of the best. But you all during this time you also see a lot of really bad, cheap, on a, you know, cash grabs that tried to, t- to cash in on the rise of popularity in dinosaurs thanks to Jurassic Park. We got things like Theodore Rex, Dinosaur C- Adventures in Dinosaur City, the Carnosaur series. Uh, I, I believe uh, Obscure Lupa did a great uh cover coverage of the carnosaur series back in the day that should still be on her channel um so this so that was there's been a lot so it started early and was really expensive when jurassic park did it 
But it only took until about the end of the decade and into the 2000s where we started to see CGI become the most prominent way to bring dinosaurs to life. And you see that after Jurassic Park with a lot of the B-movie schlock that, uh, that like uh, the likes of The Asylum and Sci-Fi have done. Uh, let me pull up uh, <clears throat> films featuring dinosaurs. Uh, year. Let's pull up like the mid 2000s. We've got uh, Lost World, Jurassic Park, uh, Flintstones, did mix of puppet and uh, CGI animation. Um, there's a 2001 Lost World movie that I think you CGI as well. A 2001 schlock movie called Raptor. Uh, let me. See. I'm trying to see. Uh... They include the uh, Godzilla movies, which are more guys in suits. But I don't know if you would officially call that a dinosaur movie. Uh, apparently, they did, did adapt Anonymous Rex, who was from the writer of, from who was from the writer um, Eric Garcia. But I have no. It was supposed to be a backdoor pilot for a sci-fi series. But they have no; they don't show anything about the movie. Um, screwed up the year. Uh, that was uh, Anonymous Rex. What was? Where was it? Uh, Two thousand four. Dino Croc, um, which was a which is, uh, doesn't say specifically uh, what who made it, but it was a directed video schlocky movie. The something called The Last Dragon. Uh, which was a mix, which is trying to make a fictional uh, documentary about uh, dragons being real. Raptor Island for the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, Donatopia. That I remember they did a thing for that. Uh, Pterodactyl sci-fi, for the Sci-Fi Channel. A Sound of Thunder featured dinosaurs a little bit, kind of, not really. Um the Eden Formula, another made-for-television sci-fi movie for the Sci-Fi Channel. Um, Planet Raptor, which is a sequel to Raptor Island. Uh, one million BC, not years, just one million BC from the Asylum. Aztec Rex, Tyrannosaurus Azteca uh, from the Sci-Fi Channel. Journey to the Center of the Earth. Um, oh my god, they did a Turok Son of Stone movie. Oh my god, yes. I need to find that monstrosity, yes. Uh, Land of the Lost, uh, they did a... And, went, and then they did the, they did a... Asylum did a remake, kind of, of The Land of Time Forgot when the Lost Land of the Lost came out. Dino Shark, Triassic Attack. Uh, Tree of Life apparently featured dinosaurs. Uh, the Dino King from South Korea. Uh, Dino Time, which is another, which is a kids movie from South Korea. The Dinosaur Project, Raptor Ranch, Age of Dinosaurs, uh, Reptiloid from Croatia. A Tarzan movie, the German Tarzan movie from 2013 featured dinosaurs. Uh, Dinosaur Island. So yeah, by this point, dinosaurs were all being done in either really terrible. What the? 
Dino Time is the... Why am I getting two references to Dino... Oh, oh, it's one of those. Oh, good. Apparently there are even dinosaurs in the Iron Sky sequel, the one where Nazis are alive. So that's fun. Ooh, Australia did one uh, called My Pet Dinosaur. That might be worth looking into. Um, so yeah, it's... If you're doing live-action dinosaurs at this point, you're going to have to use CGI. That's the big takeaway, mainly. After dress, after the 2000s, unless it's 2D animated, you're, you're, and if it's live-action, you're going to see CGI dinosaurs. Unless it's really cheap and they go with a puppet. <laughs> or like a man in a suit again. Oh, lovely. Um, speaking of animated, uh, let's talk about those animated movies. You can actually trace back animated movie, animated dinosaur movies... But yeah, you can see what I'm talking about where aside from, you know, all aside from like bits that mention that, like there's a Tyrannosaurus skeleton in the Night of the Museum series and there are dinosaurs in the third Ice Age movie. Aside from little, like aside from certain entries that feature dinosaurs, there hasn't been a really mainstream dinosaur centered movie in from Hollywood like it takes like it takes like every couple of years you'll get things like walking with dinosaurs the 3D movie or you'll get uh a Godzilla remake or Age of Extinction featured the Dinobots uh, or Pixar will do the good dinosaur you know aside from that it's few and far between for dinosaur movies they just aren't being made by mainstream hollywood for the most part um oh god i remember T-Rex back to the Cretaceous i remember they did like a tie-in computer video game for that. Oh, God. Why is Barney on here? Barney does not count, and you know it. Oh, I forgot uh, the other um, puppet miniature thing. Prehysteria. Yeah, for the, in the early 90s, there was a series of family movies called Prehysteria that featured uh, animatronic and, and, like, claymation dinosaur, baby dinosaurs. And it had, like, three, three, three entries... With the third one being about freaking, <laughs> the third one being about uh, miniature golf. Ah, uh, uh, it's lovely. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about animation. Uh, going back to the beginning, the first animated in, in, uh, in use of dinosaurs in film was by was actually bef- uh, right around the same time they were introduced. In uh, by D.W. Griffith, the racist prick that he is, in a short film he called Brute Force, aka Primitive Man, and that one was about cavemen and dinosaurs, and and featured the first live-action dinosaur on film. And that same year, um, I need to look this up because I only know Brute Force through Linkara, and that was the comic. Um, uh, book about the animals, cyber cybernetic animals. Um, let me see some images. Um, it looks like they're puppets and some stop motion. That seems to be, and there's a slurposaur. So it's a little mix of all that. And I have no need to watch it because D.W. Griffith can rot in hell where he belongs. Um, but yeah, in 1914, we also saw the first uh, animated depiction of a dinosaur with Gertie the Dinosaur, which was 
Brought to us by animation pioneer Windsor McKay. For those who don't know, Windsor McKay uh, is best known for the comic strip Little Nemo, which served as the inspiration for the um, the movie of the same name from uh, the 80s and uh, that video game based on it. But he also animated Gertie the Dinosaur. And he, it, was a, the, it was one of the first... It was, this was the early days of animation where they were, you were just starting to see um, these things brought to life. And so he took, and so he went from little Nemo to, um, and to, to trying to bring these cartoons to life through animation. And um, yeah, he, so he, thanks to Gertie, the dinosaur was able to serve as inspiration to animators down the line. Like, uh, like Disney owes even owed you know owes his success, and he acknowledges that to the work that Windsor McKay did uh, back in the day. And uh, what's this? Ghost of Slumber Mountain. I think that's another live action. Okay, that's an early Willis O'Brien joint. Um, but yeah, after that, you you've only seen you only see little bits and pieces of dinosaurs until you get to Fantasia. With the Rite of Spring segment, which you all will probably know uh, as as one of the most memorable bits. It's set dirt, set to uh, Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring ballet and little bits and pieces, not the whole ballet, obviously. That was how Fantasia did it. But it covered the history of time up to the extinction of the dinosaurs. And it's one of the most iconic sequences in the entire movie. And if you're a dinosaur lover like me, that was the bit you watched over and over again. Um, let me look. Let me sort by type because they do allow me to. This thing does allow me to sort here. Okay, uh, 3D animation. Then we get to the Flintstones, which fe- which features the animation. Um, Doraemon apparently did some animation. Uh, something called Allegro non troppo, which I think is. Uh, Italy's answer to Fantasia. It's a parody of Fantasia. Okay, cool. So where do the dinosaurs fit into that? Uh, ooh, they they did Firebird Suite before for, before Fantasia did. I'll have to check this out. Uh, does not list dinosaurs. Maybe it's the caveman. It must be the cavemag said because there's a set, satyr. Set to Debussy's Prelude à la Pré-Midi d'Enfant. Um, if I, I'm sorry if I butchered that. Uh, but Prelude, Prelude of a Fawn. Uh, Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn. Um, ooh, that's, I like that piece. Uh, they did a cla- caveman um, segment set to uh, one of Javorak's uh, Slavonic dances. Uh, Ravel's Bolero is set uh, set is, has something to do with Coca-Cola uh, and is, is a parody of the Rite of Spring segment. Uh, Sibelius's Valse Triste um, is in here. Uh, and then, of course, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite. Uh, I'll have to check this out. This sounds right up my alley. I'm surprised I haven't seen this yet. Uh, but there's like a parody with a Coke bottle in it. So I'm down for this. Um... Something called The Missing Link from Belgium and France, uh, which features cavemen and dinosaurs. A lot of stuff with cavemen and dinosaurs. That seemed to be the main thing. 
And then you really didn't see um, a push uh, in animation. It, like, this stuff came few and far between. Gertie in, Gertie in 1914 was the first. Next one was 30 years later in Fantasia. Then 20 years later in a, in a Flintstones movie. Then, then 10 years later in that Italian parody of, for, uh, of Fantasia. And then four years later in Doraemon. And then by, as the, by the end of the 80s, that's when we started to see a jump in animated dinosaur movies uh, for the big, uh, instead of television. Because that seemed to be the main thing for dinosaurs. Uh, but that, you know, was after, the, after, the, uh, after Land Before Time, we saw uh, We're Back. In the 90s, all of the Land Before Time sequels, which was like one a year. Uh, Dinosaur Island in 2002 from Deke Anime Entertainment. Uh, Dinotopia, which was a base, which was a spinoff of that short-lived Hallmark movie, uh, Hallmark TV pilot they tried to do. Uh, Tor- the Torox of Stone movie. Mostly, most of the dinosaur movies throughout the 90s and 2000s were Land Before Time sequels. Uh, Bambi meets Godzilla, the short in 1969. Um, there's something called Dinosaurs, a fun-filled trip back. Oh my god, I remember that! It was a claymation movie. Oh, I love that. Um, but yeah, uh, it, after, 2D animation definitely took a dive in the late 2000s. And that's where you saw the rise of CG animated movies, such as Disney's Dinosaur. And then, then I say Dawn of the Dinosaurs, the Dino King from South Korea, uh, that Tarzan movie, and then Pixar's The Good Dinosaur. And then there are little bits of dinosaurs in um, Early Man. And then apparently there was something, a sequel to that movie in South Korea released uh, recently. So I have to look into those as well. Um, so yeah, dinosaur movies sadly have not really um, been as prominent as they should be considering like, aside from the big ones like The Lamp Before Time, like Jurassic Park, I mean, and then Godzilla was only incorporated because he's kind of based on a dinosaur. Aside from that, it's mostly B-movie schlock, like the Hammer stuff from the 60s of Cave Girl, which was more, mainly focused on making cave girls. And then you've got crap like Carnosaur and... Uh, the asylum movies and the sci-fi movies, dinosaurs have been kind of relegated to schlock status, sadly, and I I, I feel that's unfair. And and also kind of showcase. And if it's not schlock status, then you've also got it paired into kids' fair, things like Barney, The Land Before Time sequels, Dinosaur Train, Dino Saucers, Dino Riders. Um, only thing really television related, uh, I mean, even the Flintstones has been relegated to kid stuff, even though it started off as a, as a sort of animated, uh, sitcom. But, sadly, most people think of dinosaurs as stuff for little kids, obviously, because real, you know, because adults don't care much for dinosaurs, which is bullcrap, because dinosaurs are amazing! What person wouldn't, like, of course we want dinosaurs, we just don't want dinosaurs to suck so much. You know, that's why I couldn't allow for uh, Jurassic. Couldn't give a break to Jurassic World because you're. Yeah, you know, I still want dinosaurs, but I want my dinosaurs to be good. Dang it! And uh, yeah, I, I I think being relegated to the stuff of kids sadly doesn't didn't help it. So either it's for little kids, 
or it's or it's for schlocky B movies. And I feel like that's unfair because dinosaurs are amazing. We should have more stuff featuring dinosaurs. And we pro- and unfortunately I don't know if we'll get that. So dinosaurs, you deserve better. Especially better than what Colin Trevorrow has for you. Christ almighty. Alright, I think that about does it for the discussion. Which leads us into... And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's Box Office Report. This week only saw one new release, as I mentioned. So with that in mind, let's take a look at where the other two things I saw this weekend ended up. Um, Apparently American Animals saw a jump in uh, gross... Uh, let me take a look at it. Um, it, 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 started, it looks like it started off in limited release. And, oh, it started off in June in limited release. And it has been steadily growing in uh, box office stuff. So it started off with 100, 134000 Then it Then the next weekend was 229000 Then 210000 and this weekend, it's estimated to earn over $500,000, which isn't much, but considering its indie movie status, it's pretty good, all things considered. Like, it's, for an indie movie that took a while and doesn't have a major distributor behind it, it's st- that steady increase in its box office is actually a good thing. That means it jumped more than twice its box office from the last weekend, and is, almost, and is just outside of the top ten. So if, it, if it's able to um, increase its theater count in the next couple of weeks... It might even improve based on that. Um, doesn't specify how much its box, how much its uh, its um, budget was. Let me double check the uh, wiki. See if that has it. Three million budget. So if it can, if it can manage to scrape together six million, it's all right. That'll put it in the black. So wish, wish it the best of luck. And if it's going this direction. That seems to be doing the right thing. Meanwhile, dropping from 11 to 12 is Gotti, which only brought in, which brought in more than American Animals, but only brought in, uh, but brought, still brought in under a million this weekend. Domestic total is $3 million. No foreign total. Let's take a look at that budget. Any information on that budget? $10 million to make. So American Animals has it's is one third of a way to making back its budget and is steadily on the rise, whereas Gotti is already falling down and couldn't even make back ten million. So good riddance. Thing sucks. Um, so taking a look at the top seven as we do, uh, number seven this weekend is the same as last weekend actually. Uh, Hereditary, Superfly dropped dropped out of dropped the lowest. But Hereditary managed to stay in at number seven, bringing in $3.8 million and bringing its domestic gross to $35 million and its foreign gross to, to thir- and combined with the foreign gross, its worldwide total is $48 million. Which, hey, that means it's already starting to make, back, make, make everything back. It's doing great. So good for Hereditary. Uh, it's, not, it's not the same smashing success as A Quiet Place was, but it's still doing solid numbers. Solo a Star Wars movie is at number six, dropping down from number four. And it only brought in four million this weekend, bringing its domestic to 202 million, and the worldwide total up to 353 million. So 
it's only now make it make made back its budget, and it still hasn't recouped any marketing losses. This movie is a flop, all things considered, and it's a it's the reason why Disney decided to cancel any future spinoff movies, which I'm okay with. Take a couple of years and focus on the mainline series. If you want to do spinoffs, do something more interesting. Do things like the Old Republic series. Do things like the Thrawn stories, you know? Do something we haven't already seen before. Because that's where the money is. That's why Rogue One did better than Solo. Because we hadn't seen Rogue One as in that way. You hadn't seen that story till before. Solo was basically retreading everything we know about Han Solo. Next up, staying at number five, is Deadpool. Deadpool uh, brought in 5.2 uh, million this weekend, uh, bringing its domestic gross up to 304 million, and its worldwide gross up to 700 million dollars. And it actually lists the budget here as 110 million. So its domestic gross alone made back its money. Combined with the foreign total, Deadpool 2 was a smashing success. Probably even bigger than the... Let's take a look at the... Uh, it's still behind the first Deadpool movie, but it's both Deadpool movies are the highest grossing of the entire X-Men franchise, adjusted for inflation. How are they adjusted for inflation? Uh, adjusted for inflation... Deadpool is still actually the highest grossing of the X-Men movies. Like, the X-Men sequels from the, from the 2000s are right behind, are between the two Deadpool movies. But Deadpool is still the most successful of the X-Men movies, which I don't know what that says. And with it, I'm not sure what Disney's going to do now that they own Deadpool. I would hope they would just let, let it ride because it's not, you know, don't mess with the money. But who knows? We'll see where that goes. Uh, dropping down from number three to number four is Tag. Tag brought in 8.2 million this weekend, bringing its domestic gross up to 30 million and its worldwide gross 31. Brought in a million overseas. So, it's made back its budget, but it's not, but it still has a ways to make back its marketing. So, it's partial success, but not a not a big success. Not the kind that may, you know, warrants any further sequels. Maybe it'll do well on DVD. We'll see. Next up, Dropping down from number two to number three is Ocean's 8, which brought in $11.6 million this weekend and bringing its domestic total to $100 million and its worldwide total to $170. So it's technically a success now. It managed to make back its budget plus its um, marketing. So it's technically a success, even though it's still the lowest performing of the Ocean's franchise. So... You know, let it be known that even though the franchise is, is is petering out, it's still able to make some semblance of a profit. So, good for it. Next up, number two this weekend is last week's number one, Incredibles 2, which brought in $80 million, almost $81 million this weekend, bringing its domestic total to $350 million and its worldwide gross to $485 million, which means this movie did great. This movie already is making a profit in its second weekend. So I, th I think it already made back its money in the first weekend. It's already making, it's already making a profit in the second. This is excellent. Uh, it's actually ranked number four, unadjusted for inflation, uh, 
for picks are at the moment. Uh, still behind Inside Out, Toy Story 3, and Finding Dory. If you adjust for inflation, Finding Nemo and Finding Dory are right neck and neck. They're the highest grossing Pixar movies. Toy Story 3 and 2 are right behind, then Monsters, Inc., the original Toy Story, then Inside Out, then the first Incredibles, then Up, and then Incredibles 2. So Incredibles 2 is in the top 10 of highest grossing Pixar movies. So let it, let it be known that this... This movie, you know, this movie is warranted, and people I are loving it from what I hear. I didn't love it as much as the first one, but it's still an an, an incredible movie. So it's it's I'm glad to see it succeed. Fourteen years in the making, and it was all worth it. And last and last and certainly least, number one this weekend was Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom, bringing in a hundred and fifty million dollars domestically and globally. 700 million dollars the foreign markets went out in droves to save this movie this movie couldn't make back its budget by itself domestically the foreign markets ate this movie up and i gotta say i i gotta say it has to be the fact that you this the terrible movie the terrible plot is not translated for that audience the plot doesn't matter because it's for the foreign markets. It's the same problem you had with Resident Evil and Transformers. The plot makes no sense because it's not about the plot. The foreign markets don't care about the plot. They care about the action. And I think that's where the problem comes in. But it's obviously not a problem for Universal because they make all the money. So this is already on its way to make over a billion dollars. So we'll see where it is next weekend. It may have a falling off. Uh, how does this compare to the other uh, Jurassic Park movies? Still ranked number fifth. Uh, Jurassic it hasn't made domestically. It hasn't made more than Jurassic Park three yet, but that's the next one to to beat. And adju- even adjusted for inflation, it still can't beat Jurassic. It, it uh, Jurassic the other Jurassic Park movies, and worldwide unadjusted, it's number three behind uh, the first Jurassic Park. Jurassic World made over a billion dollars worldwide. So it's got a waste and it's slated to make that money back. So the rest of the world likes these movies probably because they don't have to sit through the terrible, terrible, terrible plot. So that was the box office report this weekend. We've got, we did see a jump from Won't You Be My Neighbor as it uh, reached more theaters. It saw saw a massive increase in the number of theaters playing it. I'm still, it made over a million dollars this weekend, so I'm hopeful to, that Won't You Be My Neighbor will come to my area that soon, because I'm dying to see um, how that turned out. Uh, even though it's out of the top ten, how is Infinity War doing? Uh, let's take a look at it in the Avengers series. Not the Avengers series, uh, the Cinematic Universe. Uh, still $30 million behind Black Panther domestically, and... Um, Still the highest grossing movie worldwide. Over $2 billion. Good for them. So happy. Happy for you guys. And last but not least, let's take a look at what's to come this weekend. Now, full disclosure, I will be in Chicago for um, Double Toasted uh, Double Toasted in Chicago that uh, this weekend on Saturday. So uh, if, you're, if you're in the Chicago and you're going to that, check me out there. But... Um, but I will still be able to make the 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 two uh, wide releases this weekend. That shouldn't be a problem. So let's take a look at those two wide releases. 
First up, the sequel to the critically acclaimed uh, movie of uh, by, who was it? 2015, uh, Denis Villeneuve and Taylor Sheridan. Um, Sicario is getting a sequel. No Emily Blunt this time, focusing mainly on Benicio Del Toro and Josh Brolin's character. So let's take a look at the last trailer for Sicario, Day of the Soldado. I don't know why that, that's better than Soldado, but whatever. I know who you are. Yeah, that little girl You're thing. Just, we didn't need that. Yeah, I'm having Logan flashbacks. And now you hunt them. Yeah. Adios. Even though Taylor Sheridan's returning as the writer, this feels like that leap from First Blood to Rambo First Blood Part 2. adding drug cartels to the list of terrorist organizations. You can understand how that will expand our ability to combat them. You want to see this thing through? I'm going to have to get dirty. Dirty is exactly why you're here. Is that a George Bush standing? With who? In 2018? Everyone. No rules this time. June 29th. Your objective is to start a war between the Mexican cartels. Not with the Mexican government. This girl was witness to the mission, correct? Yes, sir. We can't risk her falling into the wrong hands. Clean the scene. They want me to cut ties. You gotta get rid of her. I can't do that. Don't put me in that situation. You gotta do what you gotta do. I'm gonna need a strike team to a Blackhawks. Drones with attack capability. Where's the coup? Mexico. Can you award winner Benicio del Toro? Nominee Josh Brolin. You have no reason to trust me. But trusting me is how you're gonna survive. Good luck. Luck doesn't live on this side of the border. Yeah, I'm not sure what that's about. I don't even know where the Soldado thing comes from. So I'll have to revisit uh, the original Sicario. But yeah, this feels like they're going that route of, now we're a slick action movie franchise. After being an actual like commentary on the war on drugs and the Mexican cartel's treatment of people. Yeah, that's going to be fun. So the other one this weekend, this coming weekend, is Uncle Drew. Based on the Pepsi commercials, starring Kyrie Irving. Fantastic. Let's take a look. We all remember that one moment that made us believe. The game is filled with stories of legends and how they were born. But this is not that story. Was you just watching me sleep again? Boy, you are better than cable, okay? Wait a minute now. What's going on? I use everything I got on this tournament. You lost our superstar to another coach. 
What's that smell? Is that a grudge? This is yeah. perfect for dance to meet Uncle Drew, the greatest black top player I've ever seen in my life. Oh my nuts. Oh Joe nuts. All you wannabes out here won't play like that. Man, that old age makeup is pretty bad. You can combine the old school with the new school. It's gotta be my team, my roster. Yes! Is that a Game Boy? An electronic book? Come on now. Gotta get the boys. Who's putting the squad back together? Oh god. That old age makeup on Shaq is terrible. Come out! Pass the ball, Kobe. Come on, Drew, you told me these dudes can play. And this dude, he's a karate man. Hey, uh, he's meditating right now. This guy right here can't even see. Swish. How's that geriatric team of yours? You get them all individual life alert bracelets? You still don't believe, do you? I got each of you a little something. So we gonna ball? We gonna ball. This is where... Yeah, apparently there's a WNBA player on the team, too. Let's do this! Play the game the right way. It fixes everything. Get that out of here. This is the moment. You gonna run away from it, or you gonna step up and take it? For a lifetime. probably going to be one of the lesser Tiffany Haddish movies this year. Like, um, I know she, I know she's going to be in night school. Hopefully that's way better. That that whole, like, the whole bit there feels wasted for her. That's not, I don't know, we'll see. I hope I don't get sick of Tiffany Haddish because she's one of my favorites, right, uh, comedians right now. So we'll see. But, yeah, Shaquille O'Neal, Reggie Miller, Nate Robinson, uh, Lil Rel, Howry is the... Is the young guy there? He, him being from uh, the Carmichael show and uh, Get Out. Uh, but yeah, Nick Kroll looks awful. Lisa Leslie is the WNBA player they have in here. Chris Chris Weber. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I'm I, the last time basketball players made a movie out of a commercial, it was Space Jam, and that was that was a rough one to sit through. So hopefully, this is somewhat better, but we'll see. And with all that being said, out about the this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you are listening to this podcast, you are most likely listening to us through our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out and check out all of our other fine programming, be sure to, to favorite our page at GumbyCatNetworks.com, whitelist us on your ad blockers, and show some love by commenting and sharing the po- the podcast with your friends. If you don't if you're listening through one of our various uh, third-party podcast providers, be sure to rate rate us and share us and and let us know that you like this show. And you know, we're available now through Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, iHeart. We're all over the place right now. I think I think we're on Spreaker as of this moment, so we're expanding the podcast as far as we can. Just because we want more people like you listening to like the show. And, you know, make sure you share it with your friends 
through your various social media. You can also follow us on social media at facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the big announcements come from. And you can also find us at twitter.com at cornjunkiepod. That's where I'm most active online. You can also follow me on Instagram at popcornjunkiepodcast. Uh, you can join me on Twitter as well for the trailer talk before a new release and the munch along, which I do when I'm either in an empty theater or by myself at home watching a movie. And you can all, and that, and so if you want to join in the conversation, that you can join me there. I'm still trying to figure out what else to do with the Instagram. I'm probably going to see if I can't share like uh, teases for the Patreon posts because I want to do more for Patreon. I've already found my next munch along. The Last Dinosaur. That's going to be the next one on Patreon. I'm hope I'm hope I'm looking to get that out this week, and and I'll see if I can't do. Uh, and tying in with that, I sh- I should probably do uh, the next um, uh, make a better movie with Jurassic World. Uh, not so much Fallen Kingdom. I can I'll wait for that to come out on DVD before I do a uh, an official um, making better movie of that. Just just so people have some more time to see it. But there's ways I would have improved um, Jurassic World. So I'm gonna, I think I, that, those two will be what I work on this week. And so if you want to see those, plus the, the, uh, the other uh, Much Along and uh, Make a Better Movie I did, you can join me over on patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. There you'll get early access to all the new episodes, plus you'll get... Um, those uh, premium features, and after Bambi and Iron Man three, all future Munch Along and uh, Make a Better Movie episodes will be specifically available for patrons only. So you get a te- you get a little taste of those first episodes, but everything after that is going to be specifically for the patrons. And we're hopefully going to try and get those out every week. Uh, I'm looking, to, I'm hoping that if I can get more patrons on the po- on the on on the site. To support that, I'll gladly try to give them at least one every two weeks or one every week. We'll see, you know, depending on my schedule. So you can join me over there and support the podcast by just donating as little as a dollar a month. So if you if you are, if you are able to, please show your support for this podcast by by donating to Patreon.com/popcornjunkie. And if there's anything else you want to say, you want to give your own opinions on uh, Jurassic World, you want to give your thoughts on. Uh, dinosaur movies, some of your favorite dinosaur movies, something I missed maybe, you can follow me over on, you can send all of your feedback, your questions, your comments, all of that at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. And if you want, I'll read it out on the podcast. And if not, I'll, I'll get back to you as soon as possible. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And dinosaurs go roar, roar, roar. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nathio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nathio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. They, the people supporting John Gotti sound like a bunch of mouth mouth breezer mouth is mouth brazers. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, there's something, all right. And uh, that about does it for this week, which uh, which means I need to end the episode. Damn it. Screwed it up.